Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Finance Minister Vic Fideli has served libel notice to former leader Patrick Brown over statements made in his book. Police in Canada can now demand breath samples at bars and in your home. And the Ontario government is launching public consultations on reviewing the auto insurance rate system here in Ontario. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Finance Minister Vic Fideli has served libel notice to former leader Patrick Brown over statements that Brown made in his book from a few months ago. Uh, also, a number of other things that are happening in Queen's Park as uh, they get back. They're not even back in session yet, but they're still making news uh, because of some of the back and forth that's going on. Joining us to talk about this is Alan Carter. Alan, of course, is the co-anchor of uh, Global News at 530 and 6 and the host of Focus Ontario, which is seen every weekend on Global News. Uh, morning, Alan. Happy New Year to you, by the way. Well, Happy New Year to you as well, Bill. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm just you know using my, my journalistic integrity here and my, my years of experience. I'm getting the impression Vic Fidelli and Patrick Brown don't like each other. Am I off base here? What? what? Stop <laughs> with the just blue sky there. <laughs> Yeah, obviously, um, you know, the the book that Patrick Brown released late last year did not go over well with <laughs> a number of members of the Ford government. And what you have here is your first step towards uh, libel action. The way it works is that you have to um, serve notice. You have to give a person an opportunity to remove what you believe to be the libelous material. In other words, you have to give an opportunity to say, well, either retract or uh, take it down. And what the lawyers for Mr. Fideli ha- are asking the publisher of uh, Mr. Brown's book to do is to expunge all of these portions of the book that deal with Mr. Fideli and the allegations that uh, a former staffer with caucus services had, had made a complaint about him. Of course, the publisher of the book says, well, that's not possible. And you can see why. I mean, I, I have a copy of the book. What are they going to do? Come to my house and redact sections of it? <laughs> Guy knocking on your door and he's got a black marker in his hand? Exactly. I'll just be a minute, exactly. Mr. Carter. Yeah, yeah just, I just got to take care of this. So so th- that, that's the logistics of this whole thing. But, I mean, obviously what he's looking for, I guess, more often than not is an apology. But I wanted to ask you about this. I and mean, I guess we have to backtrack a little bit on this one, Alan. Because wasn't there, a, 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 I know he's made the allegation in the book, but wasn't there some story about that even before that? Uh, unsubstantiated, but it was out there, wasn't it? It was. You may recall that during the madness of uh, the first few months of 2018, when Mr. Brown was uh, uh, deposed, I guess I'll use that term, as as leader, there was, when Mr. Fideli was interim leader, there were whispers about this, and there was actually even a... a a press conference by a lawyer uh, representing the complainant talking about it. And then it all kind of went away. Uh, and what Mr. Brown doesn't exactly say, but sort of infers in his book is that Mr. Fidelli became, once Mr. Fidelli became interim leader of the party after Mr. Brown uh, resigned, that suddenly this issue that was, had, was on the back burner anyway, because Keep in mind that, that Mr. Brown says that the complainant sent a letter to him complaining about Mr. Uh, Fideli, but then asked specifically that nothing be done about it. And Mr. Brown says that he, um, he, he, he upheld that request. So this had gone nowhere. But Mr. Brown says that as soon as that uh, Mr. Fideli took over the party, all of a sudden this person wasn't working for the party anymore and the complaint went away. So he sort of leaves that out there to dangle, to, to suggest that perhaps 
something untoward happened or why is it that this went away? I mean, he doesn't answer the question, but he certainly raises a lot of it. Yeah, by by insinuation, obviously, which I guess is what ruffled the feathers of uh, of Mr. Fidelli in his situation. It's the, the old idea of, yeah, this is, because it was Fidelli, obviously, that was outraged, uh, if I could use that term, about the allegations against Patrick Brown. And Brown, I guess, countered with simply saying, this is the kettle calling the pot black. Exactly. Well, exactly. I mean, this is so much of Brown's book is this, you know, finger wagging and, you know, just, you know, just chucking mud at anybody that's standing anywhere near him. Uh, and, and points out that, well, well hi, hey, how come, you know, Mr. Fidelli can wag his finger at me and be all sanctimonious when here he's got a complaint against him? Is this going to go anywhere? Because as you say, they can't retract the book. Well, it's the beginning of the process. So next up will be an actual uh a legal claim, and then that'll have a number attached to it. Like, you know, you, you, Patrick Brown, oh, you know, should pay Vic Fidelli $18 billion or something outrageous. Cause they always pick some, some absolutely huge number knowing full well that even if they win, it'll get, you know, a quarter of that. Yeah. If, if at all. Um, and, and then this, I, I think you're going to see more of this. Um, and this will just kind of, Drip, drip, drip. Here's something that I found really interesting is, is that on the same day that happened, that Mr. Fidelli's lawyers sent uh, this letter to Patrick Brown and his publisher, Patrick Brown issued a open letter to the provincial government complaining about lack of go service in Brampton and inviting the transportation minister, Jeff York, to join him uh, at a Brampton go station to see the situation. I'm just going to throw it out there that maybe that's not going to happen. <laughs> Let me see. This is building bridges. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, a, there's a bit of a problem going on here. Speaking of litigation, Alan, which, by the way, is pretty much a common theme with what's going on at Queen's Park these days, uh, the other side of that coin is Brown still has a, a, an action against CTV, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, that is still uh, in the works. CTV um, uh, continues to stand by its story. I contacted them most recently when the Brown book came out. Yeah. Just do the due diligence as you have to. Um, they continue to stand by the reporting, but yes, that, um, that libel case between Brown and CTV continues to inch its way forward in our court system as, you know, things move at a glacier pace in, in the courts in Canada. We, we've always seen some, some back and forth and, and some acrimony at Queens Park, but it, this has really kind of devolved into a soap opera scenario, hasn't it? Well, it has. I mean, generally, you know, what you get is, well, for example, Kathleen Wynne threatening legal action against Patrick Brown for suggesting that, you know, she'd done something wrong uh, in the Sudbury by-election. And so you have these, you know, these threats of lawsuits back and forth across the aisle. What we rarely see is this internal fighting where, you know, the, all the problems and the, and the fissures within a particular party are laid bare for everyone to see. That stuff is usually behind closed doors. So that's what makes it so unusual. Uh, and uh, it'll sort itself out, I'm sure. There'll be, uh, you know, out-of-court settlements, et cetera. Uh, but still on the topic of, of, of again, uh, legal action, uh, the uh, hearing, of course, from the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, the union, rather, uh, to do with the sex ed curriculum rollback uh, started yesterday. What are you hearing about that? Well, so what this is is uh, a two-day hearing, and today the government side will present its um, uh, its case, the government lawyers will present this case. And basically, this is uh, the civil liberties along with uh, the uh, elementary teachers federation saying that while well, the government has, you know, had, has done wrong by 
um, canceling the 2015 curriculum. And the, the question really is going to come down to whether or not the court has any jurisdiction here. I mean, you know, the, the civil liberties made all kinds of arguments about, well, you know, certain things that are not in the curriculum now that have been removed, you know, that that would create a, a bias and, and um, disenfranchises students and so on and so forth. But really what it comes down to is not a, not a discussion about that, but rather in, does the court or does the government have the right to do this? And, and that's going to be, you know, that's pretty arcane. Um, and we'll get we'll hear the government um, arguments today and then the judge will likely reserve judgment and it'll be a while. I, I can't see I cannot see the legal system, you know, ordering the government to reinstate uh, a, a curriculum. But then nobody really saw a, a judge telling the government that it couldn't cut Toronto City Council either. So who knows where it'll go. Well, and and here's the dichotomy here. They're arguing today in this courtroom, suggesting that, look, at a, a, a duly elected government can change legislation, and they can put whatever they want out there because that's, that's what the rule of government is. And in a couple of weeks, they're going to be arguing the total opposite when they go to a federal court and they start arguing about the carbon tax and saying, no, the government can't do that. That's wrong. I, I'm, I'm assuming, Alan, it's not going to be the same legal team arguing both sides. It'd be great just to be a lawyer, uh, and then when you see all this stuff blow up, you just think to yourself, "I'm getting paid. <laughs> I am getting paid." Um, yeah, no, obviously the that legal argument on on the carbon tax is a different issue. That that is uh, the provincial government arguing that the federal government does not have the constitutional right to impose a tax on the province, uh, whereas the federal government says, "Well, no, uh, climate change is a." national concern and that you know climate change being a national concern we have an overriding interest as the federal government that to be able to impose what we want and so that i mean and then what that's first up in early february when saskatchewan begins its court case against the federal government that's everybody be watching that that happens before ontario actually gets to court so it may actually even be decided before ontario lawyers get into the courtroom I, I don't know how these are going to resolve themselves. Neither you nor I are lawyers, but I'm, I'm getting the sense that the court may just simply say, look, guys, don't waste our time. Go and work this out yourselves. I don't, yeah, I don't think that ever happens because there's just too many lawyers making too much money, I think. Um, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll wind its way through, and there will be a decision whether or not the feds have the right, or in this particular case in the sex ed thing, whether or not you know, the provincial government has the right, you know, I'm not a lawyer, I don't even play one on television. But, (laughs) you know, these are very, very complicated and nuanced uh, arguments. And anybody who tells you they know one way or the other, how the judges are going to rule is lying to you. And not only that, as you well know, there's always another level of court above, you know, until you get all the way up to the Supreme Court. So just because you lose at one level doesn't mean it's over. Well, and, and that may well be the case in situations like this. And, and I know we reminded our listeners the other day when this whole thing started earlier in the week, Alan, that uh, this is not about the merits of the sex ed curriculum. I and mean, this is a legal issue. And I know that that may come up during some of the, the, the depositions that are going to be presented in court today. But uh, this, is, this is not going to be, a, you know, you should have put this in, you can't put this in there. It's just, does the government have the legal right to do this? That's the essence of, of what they're debating here, isn't it? 
That, that's exactly right, Bill. And, and so the, the argument is, again, not on what you're hearing from civil liberties where they're talking about, you know, you know, teaching gender identity and whether or not that should be in that that that's not the issue. At the same time, the provincial government says it, it's wrapping up, it's wrapped up its consultations and that it's, you know, in the midst of um, creating a, a new um, curriculum to come out. And, and so you wonder, like, well, how long will that take? And, you know, is it possible that that'll be taught, you know, starting in September of this year? I mean, that's what the government is aiming for, if not earlier. I think the question has got to be, you know, remember that, you know, the provincial government, the, the liberals had tried twice to update the uh, sex ed curriculum in 2008. McGinty failed, had to back down. In 2015, Wynn got it through only to find that, you know, her party gets punished and demolished and the new government comes in and reverses course. See how it happens. It's going to be rather interesting. Uh, I, and again, uh, if you really want to follow Ontario politics, get a law degree. That's, that's got to be step one, I think. That seems <laughs> or, to be the, man, the, the way to go there. Well, I, I, would, I would also recommend that you watch Focus Ontario. Well, what's week. coming on the show this week, Alan? What a nice segue. Well, isn't that beautiful? Uh, we're going to look at Bill 66. I don't know if you've really dug, dug into this one at all, Bill. It's really interesting. This is the um, red tape bill that the conservatives have brought in, eliminating red tape across the province. Well, a number of things in it have raised a lot of alarms, including changes to water and how we check water and how we maintain water standards and our Queen's Park Bureau Chief Travis Danrash traveled to Walkerton, Ontario this week, where obviously there are very big concerns considering what happened there in yeah. 2000. And what does that mean for our water safety? We're going to dig into that. What else is in that bill that you might not have heard about? That's this weekend on Focus Ontario, Saturday, 5.30 p.m., Sunday, 11.30 a.m. Always a, a must-watch uh, to find out what is happening in the province. Alan, thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. Always great to be on, Bill. Appreciate it. Take care now. Alan Carter, of course, co-anchor of uh, Global News at 530 and 6 and Focus Ontario, which we just talked about. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as we told you, with uh, the advent of uh, 2019, uh, some uh, new regulations about uh, impaired driving have come into effect. And, uh, well, we, we knew a little bit about this. And, in fact, we know now that police don't have to have probable cause or even suspicion to be able to demand a breathalyzer test uh, if they stop you. And we thought, a lot of us thought, well, okay, if that's going to stop the carnage on our roads and, and the drinking and driving, I guess that's okay, although there are some concerns about civil liberties, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at the letter of the law, uh, as unbelievable as this may sound, these revised laws now on impaired driving could actually see police demand breath samples from people in bars, in restaurants, or even in your own home. And if you say no, you could be arrested, pay, maybe face a criminal record ordered to pay a fine, subjected to a driver's suspension. You could be in violation of impaired driving laws even two hours after you've been driving. Now, I, I want to boil down on this one because it's, it's somewhat concerning for an awful lot of people who may want to be law-abiding citizens but at the same time get caught up in this. I want to bring Joseph Newberger in the conversation. Joseph, of course, is a criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners, LLP. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Oh, my pleasure. It's important issues. It, it really is, because I, I, I think a lot of us were, to, to a certain extent, probably buying into this thing. Okay, maybe we do have to toughen up the laws a little bit. But this element of it, Joe, is really under the radar for most people. It is. And, and i got to be honest, the whole idea of providing a roadside 
which is a mandatory requirement without any evidentiary standard, is, is really quite silly because the threshold that the police had to achieve originally was quite low, but having that minimum standard was important. Now, uh, the other troubling part is up to two hours after driving, the police can make a demand of an individual. And let's just go to the extreme for a second. You're on your way home. Maybe you're very tired, driving a bit erratically, has nothing to do with drinking and driving. A, a citizen sees the car, phones it into police. They've got your license plate. Uh, you arrive at home, go sit down, turn the TV on, watch a sports game, maybe the Raptors or something, decide to have a few drinks. An hour later, you get a knock at the door. Hi, Hamilton Police Service, how are you? Uh, we've got a report of erratic driving. We'd like you to provide a roadside sample, please. Well, what if I don't comply, sir? I, I, I wasn't drinking and driving. Well, you're going to have to comply. If you don't, you're going to be charged. So then you step outside and you take a roadside and you blow over. Then you get charged. And then it's your onus to establish at the time of driving that you are not over the legal limit. So in other words, essentially you're guilty unless you can prove you're innocent. Absolutely. Which kind of runs contrary to the to the <laughs> to the whole concept here. And and Joe, that's not a hypothetical. I mean, I, I know a lot of people. I mean, I've been in that circumstance. You know, if if you're the DD, you're going up for dinner with family or friends or something like this, and you say, okay, I'm I'm just going to drink soda water, whatever. But I'm going home. I am going to watch the Raptors game, and I'll probably have a couple of beers while I'm doing it. So that's that's a very very plausible concept and very plausible in many people's cases. Absolutely. Or you go out for a business dinner and you don't plan on drinking, but then all of a sudden you guys are talking and you wind up having a couple of scotches and then you go, you know what, I'm going to Uber at home. I'll just leave the car here. But somebody saw you driving to the restaurant, might have been an issue. Police try and speak with you when you're at the restaurant and then you could be charged. I mean, these are very plausible scenarios. It may be few and far between, but the fact that this exists and the possibility exists is an, incredibly ero an incredible erosion of our civil liberties. And it's far too intrusive on our own privacy and our right to enjoy ourselves in our homes or restaurants. It's too much. And it's not going to make a difference in trying to curb drinking and driving and the accidents and the carnage that we see. What it will do will lead to other erosions of our rights in other areas. And it is happening now. There's other legislation that's eroding our rights as citizens of this country. They see this as a license to do what they want to do. And it's becoming, in my opinion, a much more difficult country to defend yourself or protect yourself. I want to get into to some of the, the, the nuances of this, because this is one of the things I found. So to use your example, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll have a couple of drinks just at the end here, but I'm, I'm not going to drive. I'll get a cab or I'll Uber or whatever. The, the, and if they come into the restaurant and say, no, I want you to, to take a, a breathalyzer, that's, they're presuming that I'm going to drive home, but I've already made a decision not to. Right, and but but the the other issue is it, this would have to be in relation to somebody complaining about your driving on the way to the restaurant. So they have to have some basis to approach you in the restaurant because it would have to be at the time of driving. So it's not just simply because you're in the restaurant. But as we do know, police cruisers park outside restaurants, so when people walk walk out and go towards their car, they can be stopped. But that that was the same under the current legislation. The key to this new piece is that there's some element of evidence that has been communicated to police that there is something wrong or suspicious about driving, and then the person is now in a restaurant or in a home or in a friend's home, and then the police arrive to investigate. Well, okay, but, you know, you, it depends on who's going to make the phone call, too, doesn't it? I mean, uh, hey, I saw yeah. I saw Kelly driving over to the restaurant there, and you know he's been there for three or four hours, and I think he's really pounding them back. You, you better check into this. But yeah. I, have, I have no intention of driving home. But, I mean, you know, all of a sudden a complaint's been lodged, and they're going to investigate that. 
Right, right. And it has to be within two hours after driving. Yeah. But yes, that, that's a very plausible point. And it's very aggravating to your own privacy. And by Absolutely. the way, we're, we're all do, we're doing these scenarios based on the, the idea that, okay, these are well-meaning people that see somebody who's driving erratically. Uh, there's, there can be a vindictive element to this as well. I mean, if, uh, there's a coworker that doesn't like me. They could call me out on this and call the cops on me, and I'd never know. Look, I, I can tell you I've been defending cases in high-conflict divorces, and there are calls made by There's another spouse. scenario. Yeah, and, you know, my client who is on a charge, and then all of a sudden the spouse made a complaint about an impaired driving as he left when he dropped the kids off or she dropped the kids off. And, yeah, this can be a vindictive response where it comes out of a work environment or, or, or a marital dispute. Who knows? Absolutely. Very concerning. Great invasion of privacy, erosion of rights. Well, and it's, as you say, having, uh, you know, worked in a number of those cases, I mean, it's not unusual for in, in, a, in a, like you say, a marriage breakup, any number of things like that, to have accusations going back and forth on this. Uh, and, right. and, and if there's somebody who's truly vindictive, this is a tool they can use now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. I would expect the police would try and act in a judicious, reasonable manner. I don't want to presume that they're going to do anything wrong. But just the fact that this can go go awry for individuals now is extremely scary, and this is a very important issue that we have to address as a society and as citizens, especially when we have an election coming up. Well, and I understand, and we we talked about this when the government was talking about my, you know making these amendments to it, and and you know because of the carnage and because of the accidents and the number of people that are caught to, to be driving over the limit, we figured okay maybe we've got to do something about this. But I'm I'm a little apprehensive about this one element of this that that they can actually go into your house or go into a, a, an establishment. Uh, before you even get behind the wheel again and, and, and just assume yep. that you're going to be driving. I, yep. I was always under the impression, that, you know, okay, if you got behind the wheel, then it's all fair game. You know, you've made sure. a decision to try to drive, and they have every right to come in there and say, no, you can't. But if Absolutely. you drop the keys on the on the table there and say, I'm not driving anywhere, uh, they, but they can still demand a breathalyzer anyway. Yeah, under the theoretically under this legislation, yes, they can. And, and again, I I, I want to you know reiterate what you just said, Joe. We're not suggesting that police are going to be hiding behind trees with these breathalyzer outfits trying right. to nab people right. on this, right. but they do have to respond to uh, if somebody makes a complaint. They can't just Absolutely. say, "Oh, come on, that guy wouldn't really do that." They have to follow up on it. That's right. That's right. And and you got to put this into uh, you know comparison with the legislation for impairment by drug. So there, there still needs to be an evidentiary standard to make a demand for sobriety testing. And I think, to a large extent, this legislation was brought in simply to focus the public, look, we're doing something about impaired driving by alcohol, and it deflects a little bit from the, uh, you know, the uh, anemia that we have in place in detecting individuals who are impaired by drug. That, to me, was a bit of a political play, and I think that's why we see this legislation. Now, it's it's early days, obviously. This came into effect January the 1st. We're just a little more than a week into the new year, so obviously there have been no test cases on this, but i got to assume at some point somebody's going to challenge this. Absolutely. They, one of the cases will come across my desk or one of my partner's desks or any number of law firms across this country, and there will be constitutional challenges. And it will be to this. It'll be to the roadside stop. And what we're going to have is you know more havoc in the courts, which was completely and utterly unnecessary. When they were crafting this legislation, was there any pushback at that time from, from no. folks like yourself? Did, did yes. you even know this was coming? No, we did. And, and there were uh, individuals who uh, testified at parliamentary committees, but they don't care. They never listen to us, and they don't care. And there was not a fulsome discussion with all stakeholders. And, um, you know, defense lawyers are the last that they want to hear from or even listen to. 
And they always say it's constitutional, just like other legislation now that it's about to get royal assent about eliminating preemptory challenges to jury selection, eliminating preliminary inquiries. It's bad. What we're going to see over the next few years is very bad legislation with very draconian impact to individuals who are accused of offenses. And I think this is just a, a hallmark of an erosion of democratic rights in this country. Well, and, and where's where's the, 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 the vision and, and the forethought into some of these to talk about ramifications? I mean, you know, instead of simply, as you mentioned, saying, okay, we're going to do this and really tighten down and make sure nobody who's intoxicated gets behind the wheel, just have, did no one think about the ramifications? I and mean, you just mentioned about five or six different very, very plausible scenarios. Just got another one here from uh, Elizabeth who said, hey, you know, what if it's a high-profile individual, you know, a politician, a public figure? All you need to do is sick the cops on them and say, I think this guy's been drinking. He better not get behind the wheel. Bingo, yeah. that guy's on the front page of the newspaper. Career could be ruined. Yeah, or, or anybody. Like, you know, forget a high-profile person, a nice person who's working really hard, supporting a family, and all of a sudden, you know, their license is gone. They can't, they, they lose their job because their job may involve driving. I mean, it can have incredibly damaging effects to individuals accused and their families. And the problem is the government doesn't think about the long-term impact of this, in my opinion. We've seen a lot of knee-jerk reaction legislation. There was that case in Saskatchewan. Very sad case, but now let's get rid of preemptory challenges. We don't like the decision in Gomeshi. Great. Let's make it impossible for accused to cross-examine complainants. Let's do all sorts of stuff because we want to pander to these groups. And it's a particular mandate that I see with this government. As well-meaning as they may be, they've got it wrong. And it's very scary. We, we, changes here in this country are very, very scary, in my opinion, from a democratic and a fairness standpoint. Now, you mentioned that at some point this is going to be challenged. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is uh, when that finally does happen, and it is inevitable that it's going to happen, it's going to take a long time. It will. It'll take at least a couple of years to get up to the Supreme Court of Canada. You know, they might fast-track some of it, um, and I don't know what will happen. I assume that provision, the two hours afterward, will be struck down. I think the roadside mandatory testing uh, without an evidentiary standard stands a very good chance to be struck down. And that other legislation, which has come out now, too, is going to be challenged as well in other areas of the criminal law. So we're going to see a lot of constitutional challenges over the next few years. And and again, the way this rolls out, I mean, even if, if you win at the lowest court level way that you, you actually put the charges in against it, uh, you know the government's going to defend their, their action here. So this is going to go on and on and on. Absolutely correct. Yeah. <sighs> you know, the message they're sending here, really, is if you have a driver's license, don't drink alcohol. Yes, and, and, and that's not a bad message, but we need to do it in a different way that doesn't erode uh, individual rights. You know, if you're drinking, don't drive. There's other ways to get home. But, you know, the reality is having one or two glasses of wine at dinner doesn't mean you're going to kill anybody. So, you know, we have to have balance in everything. We have to understand human nature and the way we interact and socialize. And, you know, as, as serious as impaired driving is, statistically speaking, still, it is not you know, as significant a danger as many other areas in our lives, including pollution and other things. So we need to focus on a number of issues and have balance in everything, including our criminal justice legislation. We talked about refusal now is, is uh, no longer an option. If you refuse the breath test, you're charged with refusing. Uh, and, and if you do blow over, is it, it's automatic, I would assume, Joe, that they have to lay a charge. Correct. That's correct. So you have to, you're in the system then all of a sudden. 
Yeah, and then you're going to have to defend it, hire a lawyer, get a toxicologist, and you're going to have to fight it out. Okay, but, but how do you reverse? How do you defend a reverse onus here? How do you, how do you defend? How do you prove that you you weren't drinking when you were out in the car earlier? Well, what you would have to do uh, is hire a toxicologist who would then take the reading. So let's say the reading was at two twenty a.m. and the time of driving was uh, twelve, uh, you know, uh, thirty-five. So the toxicologist can do a mathematical calculation. Uh, to try and read back the readings to establish at the time of driving you would have been under the legal limit or had nothing in your system. But then sometimes you'll have to do individual testing of the individual so that you can determine how they, what their rates of elimination are. So there's science involved, and it's an access to justice issue because not everybody charged will have the funds to hire a criminal lawyer who's experienced with this and then the right toxicologist. Well, and therein lies part of the problem. You just talked about, you know, there's some individual working, you know, having a couple of beers after work, and there's, they, 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 they're not going to be able to do this. They're not going to have the legal resources nor the knowledge to be able to do this. They might, you know, they, they might find somebody who can give them some legal advice, but maybe not to this extent, uh, and they're basically screwed then. Correct. Yeah. They have to find the right lawyer, and the lawyer will then have the right expert. So where are we going on this? Are we uh, uh, just waiting now for somebody to actually get charged? Because it's, it's, it's going to happen. I mean, at some point, it's going to happen. And and, yeah. and, and and then obviously the wheels of, of justice are going to start to roll here to try to find out just how we're going to, to sort this out. Correct. Uh, we Now it's just a waiting game. Legislation's in place. Uh, cases will come forward. Lawyers will make challenges, and it will work its way through through the system over the next couple of years. That's what I anticipate. I mean, because there's a structure already in place here, because you know police have been telling us for the last couple of years, if you see somebody driving erratically, call 911 and report it. And they right. do respond to those sorts of things. So, I mean, the tools are already there for this to happen. Absolutely correct. So it will happen. There will be cases. There will be constitutional challenges. And it will play out now over the next two to three years. And we'll all have to just stay tuned and see what happens. What, what about the legal community here? Is I, I know that you've tried to, to talk to the government about this before these things were enacted. Uh, do we? There's nothing more you can do at this stage. I mean, this is law now. It's law as of January the first. So we're now we just we we. There's I guess there's a the 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 the, the bad news here is that we're going to have to wait for something to happen. Sadly. Yeah, I mean, there's an election coming up, so the you know people who cast their votes can speak to their MPs and say, look, we don't like this legislation. What are you going to do? Will you amend it? Uh, so there is a political mechanism in place, but you know, uh, loosening up on criminal laws is never a good political move. But if people are up in arms about this and concerned about the erosion of civil liberties, they can speak to the MPs who are running, and they can uh, put forward their position by their right to vote. And we're going to have an election coming up. So that's one other way that we can address this. There, By the way, I'm just getting an email here from one of our listeners uh, who's uh, in on our conversation here, Joe. Uh, Daniel, thanks for reminding me about this. There's already been an example of this just a couple of days ago in the news. I'm sure you heard about this one, Joe, where a guy was returning a number of uh, empty beer cases uh, to the beer store. Uh, a police officer saw this and thought, boy, that's an awful lot of beer to be consuming in such a short period, and, and asked him for a breathalyzer right there in, yeah. the, in, the, in the parking lot of the beer store. Yeah, that was that was a guy named Arts, and I listened to it. I actually commented on it, and it did happen. And he was a 70-year-old gentleman who, you know, has never been pulled over by police, has no contact with the criminal justice system, and uh, was really perturbed by the fact that he was stopped because he's returning empty beer bottles, and I think it was noon or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And he so said to the officer, I haven't been drinking, and there was no impairment obvious at all. There was no signs of it. Yet he was detained and he had to provide a sample. So he was really disturbed by that fact, and rightly so. 
Well, we'll see. Obviously, there's going to be another story, and, and the uh, the game will be on after that. Joe, thanks so much for bringing this to our attention, and thanks so much for the insight into this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a good show, and take care. You too. Joseph Newberger, of course, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners, LLP. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ford government announced yesterday that they are going to begin public consultations uh, on uh, reviewing auto insurance rates here in the province of Ontario. Stop me if you've heard this before, <laughs> because just about every provincial government over the last number of years has tried to take a run at this, and uh, invariably it does not go well for consumers at, at the end of the process. I mean, we still pay the highest rate. Well, that, that's the number that we need to talk about here. Ontario has one of the lowest rates of collisions and fatalities on roads, okay? But we pay the highest rates in the country. Why is that happening? Uh, that's a darn good question, and uh, other governments have tried to tackle this. I've, I've got my own ideas on this, but do we really need to go through this whole process again with public consultations and a number of different things that are going to be happening? I mean, you know what the process is going to be again. Uh, joining us, I'm going to give you a couple of different perspectives on this. Uh, to start off the conversation, I want to welcome uh, Garantan Singh, who is the MPP for uh, Brampton East. He's uh, the auto insurance critic, by the way, for the opposition NDP party. Uh, Mr. Singh, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me, and it's also a pleasure. I actually have a Hamilton connection. I actually did my undergraduate at McMaster, so I spent a lot of time in Hamilton. I have a, a lot of love for the city. Great to have you on here, then. Thanks so much for this. Uh, I, I guess you weren't surprised when the government announced they were going to do this, just about every government's tried to do this in the past. And it sounds as if we're going back to square one. Do we really need to do that again? I, you know, you've actually said it quite clearly. We don't need these consultations. They're a huge waste of time because... We know what we need. We need rates to come down immediately. We pay the highest car insurance in this country. We have some of the lowest collision. We have some of the safest roads. It's unfair. And beyond anything, everyday Ontarians are really feeling the pinch. It's getting harder every day to pay the bills. It's getting harder to make ends meet. And when we're paying uh, these exorbitant amount of fees to insurance companies who are making record profits year after year, it's wrong, and it's, it's unjust, and we need action. We don't need these uh, these uh, consultations. Well, listen, since we're throwing numbers out here and we're talking about you know the highest rates, uh, it's also worth noting, I guess, that uh, insurance companies here in the province of Ontario have enjoyed a 57% increase in profits over the last number of years, so they're not hurting. Well, just to add on to that, a 57% increase, as well as a report came out last year from a, a York University professor saying, that they have overcharged Ontarians. This is overcharging, so this is beyond profits, uh, upwards of $5 billion over uh, the past years. So this is a company that's raking, making money hand over fist. They are definitely uh, you know, reaping the benefits off of everyday Ontarians. We're paying premiums, they're going up and up. Our benefits are being slashed left, right, and center. And ultimately, it's, it's the burden is being felt by Ontarian families, and this is wrong, and that's why... Uh, you know, we've been holding this government accountable, and we're saying we need action. We need rates to reduce immediately, and we don't need these uh, bogus uh, consultations. Well, I mean, what are they going to hear that they haven't already heard before? The rates are too high, and we feel as if we're being gouged. I mean, how many times do they need to hear that before they do something about it? I agree with you, but what's really concerning about the uh, the consultations is that, you know, we keep on hearing about him wanting to uh, hold consultations with also the industry. And, you know, this is something that's problematic because, we know the issue right now. We know that people are facing uh, higher, higher rates. 
And if you look at the track record, really, of this Conservative government over the past, since they've, they've been elected over the past uh, six months or so, what have we seen? We have seen uh, the increases. They've already approved a rate increase of 11% right after getting elected. They voted against my bill. I put forward a bill to lower our insurance rates that was supported by 30 other lawyers who said this would actually bring rates down. They voted against it. Uh, they put forth their own bill, which has a huge loophole, a gigantic loophole in it, which is not going to stop uh, uh, the rates from increasing. And finally, even at their own convention, at their own uh, convention, they voted against, they voted down the resolution to actually lower auto insurance rates. This government has a bad record on this on this file. Has they have a bad record on auto insurance, and it's very concerning to see them, you know, drag this issue out further with these bogus uh, consultations. Listen, but one of the things we need to do here, if we're going to have a, an honest conversation about this, is we've got to, you know, get right down to the nitty gritty and start looking at some of the root causes as to why we're getting ripped off here in Ontario. And 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 I know that may be uncomfortable for some people, but I think we start have to start looking at the insurance companies themselves and and the way that they do business. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think this is something that we need further regulation in regards to auto insurance. Like I said, we are, you know, you, you're saying the, the very accurate, you know, facts and figures. Uh, they're, they're seeing every year increases in profits. Uh, we're seeing increases in premiums, uh, you know, along, the same, uh, along that same path. We really need to have a hard look and say and really understand that, you know, auto insurance is, is broken in Ontario. When people buy auto insurance, they think that they're buying a right to drive a car. It's actually, you're buying protection. You're buying a system that's supposed to take care of you in the, you know, God forbid, in the situation in which you get into an accident or something. But those benefits that we're supposed to get from accidents are being cut as well. This is being, in regards to the consumer, any benefit we get is being slashed year after year. Premiums are going up. It's a bad situation, and we really need immediate action. And that's why we're, we're, as the official opposition, as the NDP is fighting hard to really bring these rates down and to hold this government accountable and say, listen, if you really care about Ontarians, if you really care about the consumer, then let's deal with something that affects every single driver in this province. The sponsor of this program, uh, in case you don't know, of course, is uh, Wizens Law, personal injury lawyers here in Hamilton, very famous uh, 10-time, 11-time winners now. Uh, as best law firm, personal injury law firm. Rebecca just uh, sent an, an email here, and I want you to listen to this. I might get your comment on this. Uh, she says, all motor vehicle personal injury victims are subjected to insurance examinations. That's the medical assessments conducted by psychologists, chiropractors, physiotherapists, doctors chosen by the insurance company for the purpose of denying treatments recommended by that person's own medical professionals. Now, she goes on to say, these assessments are known as insurance examinations. They are adv- advertised as independent assessments. It's a misnomer if ever there was one, because almost without exception, the amount spent on insurance examinations by the person's insurance company exceeds the amount of money that they actually send out with rehab for the person. It's a source of the insurance company's woes. In other words, they're creating this, and then they're blaming us for it, and so you're going to have to charge higher rates. It's, it's, I don't want to call it a scam necessarily, but where is the, the, the government that's going to stand up to the insurance companies and say enough is enough? You know, this is what we're not seeing from this government right now. You know, or any government. Or any, I agree with you. In the, past, the, the Liberal government before that, there's a, there's a huge problem in regards to that as well. What I can say is that we have a strong track record. My brother actually was the previous... Uh, MPP uh, in Brampton yep. who had this file, who worked really hard on this issue. Our leader, Andrea Horvath, is, you know, Hamilton uh, proud, you know, she's, she's worked very hard on really pushing forward this issue. 
and we have a strong track record. We know what we need. We need rates to come down. We need further regulation, and we need to stop this, uh, you know, this uh, auto insurance industry from slashing benefits, you know, stacking the cards against everyday Ontarians and putting people in a really precarious situation. In many, you know, households, people need to get around in a car to get to school, to get to work, to put food on the table. And when you make it so unaffordable uh, in light of all the profits they're experiencing, this is really drills down to something which is problematic and hurting people. We need to see an immediate stop and we don't need this issue dragged out with further consultations, we just need action. I know, but to, to simply say we need to lower rates, I think it's, it's, it's I understand that, and I know that that's, that's a great little catchphrase that's going to catch people's attention, but the reality is, is we're going to have to reconstruct this whole system, and I think, you know, Rebecca just outlined that with the email that she sent a few minutes ago, is that there's a system in place right now where people have this false idea that, okay, I've got auto insurance, I'm going to be looked after. But the, the reality here is that insurance companies are looking after their bottom line. And they do not want to pay out, even if it's your own insurance company. Their job is to pay as little as possible, not to make sure that you're going to be fine and whole for the rest of your life. And, and I think we have to have that honest discussion. And I don't hear anybody saying that. You know, I, I agree with you. And I've, I've, I've said it. I've said very clearly, you're talking about cuts to benefits. And that's effectively what we're, this is what we're going, we're drilling down to. When we say that driving uh, a car and having auto insurance is supposed to provide people protection, a protection where they get, you know, paid out with the support that they need for rehabilitation and the support that they need to ensure that if they get injured, that they get this, you know, the, the access to health care and, and therapy to get back on their feet or to care for them in, in, in their life. When we see these benefits being slashed year after year, that's another area we need to look at. When we see specific areas uh, in throughout the GTA and throughout Ontario who are paying higher rates purely because of their postal code, that's another area we have to look at. When we see rates increasing and uh, accident, rates of accidents decreasing, that's another area we have to look at. We need an overhaul of the auto insurance uh, uh, system right here in Ontario across the board from premiums to benefits and to how they, uh, they construct their, their areas in which they, they classify which neighbourhoods should pay more and which neighborhood should pay less. Look, at, and this is part of a broader discussion, and I've talked about this on the show many times before, is is it's easy for, for instance, somebody's running for public office to say, I'm going to lower your taxes, and or, or to say, hey, I'm going to lower insurance rates. But lower rates means less coverage. Uh, just as governments say, I'm going to spend less money, that means you're going to get less services, and it's going to have an impact on your lives. And and there is the problem. It, it's one thing for a government to say, okay, I'm going to demand or we're going to legislate that they have to lower the rates, but God help you if you get in an accident, because you're going to find out that the benefit that you're expecting are not going to be there. You're not going to get money for rehab. You're going to run out of money, and then where do you go? And, and exactly. that's the conundrum. And nobody wants to dis- have that part of the discussion. But that's the reality: is if the insurance companies are forced to just lower rates, they're going to first of all probably increase the deductible, and then they're going to decrease the level of service and the uh, the amount of help you're going to get. So you know, you're, you're, if you get in an accident, you're you're in big trouble. I'm on record, man. I'm on record saying the exact. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm saying exactly what you're saying. I'm saying that we we need to make auto insurance more affordable, and we need to not cut our benefits to Ontario, Ontario drivers. Because right now, when you are driving and you are put into uh, a situation where you you get into an accident, the whole premise of auto insurance is that a you're you as an individual have the the peace of mind that you're going to have the. Uh, you know, the insurance to ensure that you are not going to, uh, you're going to have access to resources and funds to make sure you can get therapy and whatnot. 
also to make sure that that burden doesn't fall onto the taxpayer. Because that's also going to happen. When auto insurance companies cut benefits and someone is still sick, well, that means that person is going to end up in the emergency room. And that's going to be a further cost on all Ontarians. So, you know, the NDP has a strong position. We want to see premiums decrease, but we do not want to see cuts, uh, uh, further cuts to benefits to Ontario drivers. And I'm on record saying this, and I'll say it on your radio, and I'll continue to say this. We need both of those factors. We need affordability, but we all also need support to Ontario drivers by way of benefits provided by auto insurance industries. But you know what's going to happen, because this has happened every other time there has been quote-unquote public consultation on this. And I'll, I'll, I'll predict right now that it's going to happen again this time. Is there, There'll be public consultations, and there'll be public delegations, and they're going to talk about some of these. And you're probably going to hear from personal injury lawyers and, and people that have been victimized by accidents, and they're going to talk about how woeful the system is when they finally have to access the system. And, and the insurance companies are going to come up next. And you know what they're going to do, because they do it every damn time, is they're going to woe is me to the provincial government. You know, there's rampant fraud, and it's ripping people off, and, you know, and costs are going up. And, boy, if you make us do this and we have to maintain the rates, we're going to go out of business. And every time the provincial government caves in and essentially says to the insurance industry, well, you write your own regulations then. And that's essentially what they've done over the last number of years. Well, I, you know, I, I can't. I can't but agree with you because that's correct. We've seen governments are afraid to stand up auto insurance industries. We see they're afraid to actually stand strong and say, we need rates lowered and we need to make sure our benefits are not uh, cut. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I put forth, put forth my own private member's bill to address this issue, to stop a specific issue uh, within auto insurance, the issue of postcode discrimination, because we have some areas and some communities that are paying higher rates just because of where they live. Gertrude, I'm a victim of that. That happened to me last year. We moved from Ancaster. We moved from, we downsized. Our our kids, some of our kids moved out. Same neighborhood, like half a mile away, smaller house. Our auto insurance rates went up. And, and I said, why? Because there's a, it's a two different, it's, well, it's a different area codes, and that's a higher, I, actually, I said, baloney. It's supposed to be based on my driving record, not where I live. I literally hey. moved about six blocks away, and my insurance rates went up because of it. Exactly. Why should you have to pay higher rates just because of where you live? That, that's discrimination. You're discriminating against a whole neighborhood. If your record is clear, then you should be paying as per your record. Now, I voted, uh, I put this, this bill forward, and the conservatives voted against it. What they did do, though, they put forth their own private member's bill, which is, first off, a, a confusing thing, because if they were serious, they would have put forth a government bill, yeah. but they put forth their own private member's bill, and when they did that, they put a huge loophole in it, where they said they're going to stop postcode discrimination uh, for uh, you know aspects that are primarily related to postal code or to someone's uh, phone number. What they didn't realize, or maybe they do realize, and what we realize, as I'm a lawyer and I got other lawyers to read it as well, is that when you say you know, you're going to prohibit something primarily related to, that's a huge loophole because the insurance company could say, well, you know, postcode is not our primary factor, it's our secondary or it's our tertiary. And it keeps postcode discrimination on the table. It keeps uh, discriminating people based on where they live and giving them higher rates based on that on the table. And so what we're seeing is time and time again, the record of this current Ford government is to put forth policies that are basically putting more money in the pockets of auto insurance companies. And we see that they're afraid to stand up for everyday Ontarians, everyday people, and and demand that, you know, a company, an industry that's making 50% 
uh, increase in profits that's overcharging Ontario's $5 billion. When we're seeing this, that this is a problem, that they should be standing up to it. Instead, they're opening up the door for, the, for insurance companies to make more and more money. And you've seen this happen. If somebody, is, sadly, is a victim of an accident like this, and, and if they're diagnosed to, as, as, as suffering catastrophic injuries by, by their physicians and by their team of doctors that are looked after them, invariably the insurance company will say, yeah, we want our doctor to look after it. And you know darn well, 99.9% of the time when that happens, they reassess them and say, no, you're not catastrophic. Totally. And, and you know, th- that's one area of it. And also the cuts, right? When you see catastrophic cuts going from $2 million to $1 million, and when you talk about people who are catastrophically injured, they eat through that million dollars, you know, through therapy, through, you know, the very basic necessities. They need to make sure they're having a decent quality of life. And ultimately, when that money is eaten up, then those people are put in very precarious, very, very unsettling situations where, you know, they have this conversation where they say, how do we make ends meet now? How do we make sure that this person who's injured is getting the support they need. This is supposed to be an insurance for those who are in some of the most precarious, some of the most unstable situations, victims of auto, uh, auto accidents. We know how you know, traumatizing that can be physically, mentally, emotionally, all those factors. And when you take and, uh, you know, resources away from people who are in those uh, very, very tough situations, well, you're just furthering them on the margins and you're pushing them further away. And ultimately, they're going to end up in an emergency room. They're going to end up in a tough situation. And the cost can be felt by everyone. And this is wrong. And that's why we need really, really a strong voice to stand up and say, we're going to hold this government accountable. Us as the NDP, as the official opposition, we're doing that. But we need everyday people now to really understand that the government, the current Ford government, is not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not helping and supporting everyday Ontarians. Instead, they're just caving to the auto insurance industry. Well, I, listen, I, I know because I already got some feedback after I did my commentary about this earlier this morning and said, I'll give these guys a chance. Well, they're going to get their chance. Show me that I'm wrong. Okay, and I'll hold that up to Vic Fidelli and Doug Ford right now. Show me that I'm wrong, and show me that you're going to stand up to the insurance companies. I'm skeptical, and I'm skeptical because I've seen every other government cave into them. Uh, and if they if they can do a better job, then God bless us, and we're all going to benefit from it. But I'm going to tell you, we're going to have our own public consultations on this show over the next couple of weeks and months about this, and uh, and certainly get some feedback and uh, and some suggestions. Uh, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Garantan, for joining us on the program today. This is a this is not the end of this discussion. This is uh, just the the end of the beginning i think you know i i want to thank you as well for really you have a really an immense knowledge on this subject and it is a really you know uh, a joy for me to be able to talk to someone who gets this issue gets what people are dealing with and the fact that you're 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 advocating for everyday ontarians really means a lot and i i really hope that we can keep this conversation going because ultimately it's only when this government realizes that this is going to hurt them in the ballot box that's when they're going to start really you know, hopefully make some traction. We're going to keep on, you know, making noise. We're going to keep on pushing. We're going to keep on holding this government accountable to make sure that, uh, you know, the voice of Ontarians are heard and they understand that this is a priority and we need uh, further regulation and auto insurance across the board. Well, we're going to keep talking about it because, sadly, the only time people tend to find out about how screwed up the system is is when they have to access it and they find out, you know, it's not going to be there for them. We'll talk again, again, Garantine. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you so much. Guaranteed Singh, uh, MPP for Brampton uh, East, and also the uh, uh, NDP critic, of course, for auto insurance. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.